0: Hey everyone. Today on the show we have Nikki Nakazawa, the co-founder of Agave Spirits brand Neta, and Leonardo Comercio of PM Spirits. PM is the importer and distributor for Neta in the US this conversation is awesome i think you guys are going to enjoy it so much nikki is full of information and was so forthright in in telling us the origin story for neta how they forged a relationship with the cooperative in locoche in the sierra Sur region of oaxaca we talk about agave we talk about what the area is like um where the spirit is produced We talk about how difficult it was for them to bring it to market, how happy that we all are that it is here now, how delicious it is, and um, Leo gives us some context into um, what the relationship between distributor and brand looks like. So a lot of really good information in this conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Just a quick note, we are still figuring out our recording technique for remote podcasting. So Nikki's sound quality is um, lacking, I guess. It's, it's not as good as like the professional mics that Gabs and I are using, but we are working on trying to come up with a solution for that, so please bear with us. But in the meantime, we wanna keep bringing you these conversations, so we're just gonna like work through it. Um, thanks for bearing with us, and thanks so much for listening. Drop us a line. DM us. Uh, You can reach us at ola at tuyo.nyc. Sign up for our newsletter, lots of good stuff there. And um, yeah, we're just going to keep bringing you podcasts. So thanks for listening, everybody. And here is our conversation with Nikki and Leo. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Hey, Hey, Agave. Today, I'm really excited to welcome our guests, Nikki Nakazawa, the co founder of the agave spirits brand NETA. Hello, Nikki. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And (laughs) uh, Leonardo Comercio of PM Spirits. Hello, Leo.
1: Yo, it was good. (laughs) Eastside.
0: And Gabrielle, you're with us as well. Hi although separated in separate quote-unquote rooms in our apartment. Um, Well, guys, um, this has been a long time coming, so I'm really grateful that uh, we got it together to do this remote podcast um, wherever we are in the world right now, which happens to be, I think all of us are in a borough of New York City at the moment, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, So I figured we would open up the conversation, Nikki, talking to you. And Gabrielle and I had a wonderful opportunity last year. Leo, I think you showed up to to taste Netta. Uh, it was at a pop-up for Cicatrice at Claro's restaurant in Gowanus, and Amazing. it got us really, really excited because um, the juice was delicious, and it was a wonderful experience and a great evening, and so I'm really happy to have you on, and I'm also really happy that you guys made it to the States um, as far as the brand goes and and, yeah. and the juice. So congratulations.
2: Thank you so much.
0: I know it was a long time coming, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. It has been a long time coming. but the Um, whole project has been a long time coming
0: yeah, and we're definitely going to get into that. But I think uh, I'd like to give people a background um, about you. And there have been a bunch of really wonderful in-depth articles written. Um, you've gotten some good press, girl. So <laughs> I, we don't have to go through everything logistically or like chronologically. But I think just to give people an idea of who you are and where you come from, where you found yourself for over a decade. Um So currently, I know that you're in New York now, but we're also in the midst of a pandemic, but um, you hail from Mexico City, right? You call that your home now for for quite a while?
2: Yes. Um, So I'm actually from the Boston area, um, and then I moved to Mexico City after graduating college in 2007. Um, So I was living in Mexico City from 2007 until 2018, uh, which is when I moved to Oaxaca.
0: Oh, cool. So you're based in Oaxaca. I am based in Oaxaca these days. Oh, that's fantastic. Um yeah. And, wow, how is everybody doing down there?
2: Um, everybody's okay. I think that the biggest concern right now um, is that folks aren't really taking the social distancing um, thing too seriously. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, many people aren't in a, in, in a position to actually do that. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, Everybody in my world is okay. Um, uh, there haven't been as many recorded cases, um, but that's also because there isn't a lot of testing. So we're kind of in a moment of, of uncertainty and we, we just don't really know exactly what's, what's uh, happening or what's going to happen. But in the meantime, my business partner, Max, is um, down there with his girlfriend Daphne. Um, our team is all kind of Hunker down at home doing what they can remotely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know that like our friends down there, um, at least, you know, it's been a few weeks now that the restaurants have been shut down. And I think, I think people have the message, but it's also, like you said, you know, it's really hard to implement um, in a situation like Oaxaca.
3: Yeah.
2: Especially in a city that depends so heavily on uh, tourism. So yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, It's weird not having, my finger super on the pulse since I'm not there, um, but I am in contact with uh, Max and with other friends down there. So um,
0: yeah, we'll see. I don't have yeah. idea when
2: I'm going to be able to make it
0: down. None of us do right now, you know. Yeah. Um, but so so having having lived for so many years in in Mexico, I thought that we could just talk a little bit about um, some of the projects you were involved in before um, you became um, established with Neta. So mm-hmm. um, why don't we talk about your that program that you ran, the Pichon um, mm-hmm. like the pop-ups in Mexico City and we can kind of like, you know, kind of vibe into the where you wound up um, working on that NOMA project and, mm-hmm. and where you are now. So why don't we start with the Pichon? How did that begin?
2: So uh, Pichon um, started as a kind of dream project between one of my dearest friends and I. Um, so this woman, uh, Emma Rosenbush, um, who is the current GM of uh, Kala in San Francisco, um, she and I met, uh, years ago when I was studying in Chicago. And, uh, she, uh, then was reintroduced to me years later, traveling through Mexico and Latin America. And, um, we met and we reconnected in Mexico City and like kind of had this like friendship love moment. And, Um, She had been working in uh, farmer's markets and also in prison advocacy work. And uh, we hatched this idea, um, uh, both being people extremely passionate about food and cooking, to um, do a type of farm-to-table pop-up or restaurant in uh, Mexico City. Um, And uh, part of that idea came because we had been introduced to um, two young entrepreneurs, uh, Tonio, whose last name I'm totally forgetting right now, and uh, Lucio Usobiaga, who founded this project, Yocan. And so they were returning uh, kind of sustainable farming to the Chinampas in Xochimilco, which is the the canal system. It's like 200 kilometers of navigable canals in the south of uh, Mexico city. So um, we were like, well, we can do farm to table in a way that no other place, it can't be replicated anywhere else. I mean, we're uh, thinking about how do we bring um, produce grown in Mexico City in this like these living um, ruins uh, of Mexico City uh, to to people's tables. And so that was kind of um, the idea that we had. And then um, we joined forces with two wonderful artists um uh kenny curran and pj roundtree um who were a couple at the time and uh um both fantastic artists and people and kenny's a fantastic chef and uh it started as this kind of like artist collective cooking collective doing these random not random but like farm to table very simple food farm to table pop-ups once a week and our weird like uh Garage transformed into a restaurant space in San Miguel Chipultepec. <laughs>
3: how how many people so, were you able to to accommodate?
2: Um, thirty people. It was a okay. um, a thirty seat restaurant, a single table.
3: Were you starting to introduce Mescal in this, or this was was this in the morning, the midday? What what was the um, time? So like, it
2: was like a it was a brunch. It started off as a brunch pop up because it was you know cheap ingredients and we could uh, turn a lot of tables. <laughs> Um, and so it was kind of like punky, like, um, idea that we had because we had initially thought, oh, like let's, um, open up brick and mortar and we had no idea what we were getting into. And, um, so, so we thought that like a good way to practice, um, and to get our feet wet was to start out with a pop-up. Um, so, uh, we started like really the idea was to work with local farmers, particularly like our, um with this uh, project in Xochimilco, Yolcan. And then um, we were also, this was at the, the, at the time of the birth of the Mercado Tien, which is a local organic market in Mexico City. So we were working with a lot of um, local, uh, small organic farmers um, located a uh, hundred kilometers from Mexico City. Um, and so it was all about like uh, showcasing our farmers and produce. And so we'd have these like kind of uh, artists collaborating with the menus and then we would do these kind of really simple brunch menus and then uh on the back uh list where all the ingredients were coming from. That's um awesome. and while I was doing this pop up um my boyfriend at the time he uh runs a record label in Mexico City called Naffy, Um and uh he was friends with Max. Max Rosenstock, my my business partner and uh, co founder and he uh would stay with us on route to Oaxaca um, and leave us with tons of mezcal. And so we were introduced and um, I started introducing some of these mezcals from Neuatlán into the pop-up and we started producing parties. Uh, Tomás, uh, my boyfriend, would uh, or, uh, organize the music. I would cook and then uh, Max would play mezcal.
3: It sounds, sounds like the golden years. That's Yeah, so it was awesome. a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> a
2: lot of work for not a lot of money, but you know we had a great time and we built uh, a really fantastic community.
3: Just for yeah. reference, what what year was this?
2: So this was 2011. We did our first pop up um, in a Fonda, like three blocks down the street from where Emma and I were living.
3: Because that was that was a different Mexico too.
2: Yeah, it was. We I mean we were brewing kombucha on our porch. You know <laughs> it's like. Yeah. We, we rented, I remember um, we rented the, the the restaurant, the Fonda, where we did our first pop up for 300 pesos for the weekend.
3: Oh, man. Um, oh, my
2: God.
0: <laughs> so, like 10 bucks, you know?
3: <laughs> Jesus.
2: Yeah. It's amazing. Uh-huh.
0: It's also interesting, too, because the farm to table movement was really picking up speed in at least New York around that time. Um, I know California was a little bit before us, but you guys were right on the pulse. Yeah. Yeah. We were kind of like um, the.
2: Yeah, you know, some of the first uh people to start talking about sourcing in a, a kind of robust way in mexico city and um some of the folks that first supported us were you know lalo from from maximo bistro um jorge uh of quinto Neo, um uh all these folks um elena rayadas um who are all working with Yolkan now so um you know it was it was it was the beginning of a lot of things, and it was great to be a part of that.
0: That's incredible. That's that's, that's amazing cool. that it's it's grown into what it is today. Wow. Yeah. Um. So I guess this is how this is how you started to make these connections and meet these people, and um, and then I would assume that that's, they found you for the Noma pop up.
2: Yeah. So um, I so the the, the thing with Noma happened because. I um, had been running the um, Pichon pop-up for about four years at that point, and um, my last collaboration with a good friend of mine, uh, Ugo Duran, who's the chef of a restaurant in Tulum now, um, kind of like fell apart, um, and I was just burnt out. I had been producing events like crazy, uh, making no money. Did uh, all the food for the I think it was the second iteration of the Material Art Fair. It was just you know like i was i was exhausted and so um i asked my friend uh, Yair teyas who's um the chef of, and owner of amaya um metal toro uh laha um he was about to open amaya uh, and i was like you know just give me a job <laughs> i need <laughs> i need to just know that i have money coming in it won't be for long because i can't really be employed um for too long by anyone else i'm too used to working for myself but uh but let's try it. So he um hired me as a manager for the opening the opening uh, manager for Amaya. Um his like natural wine uh restaurant in in Mexico City. Uh and so I was working with him for just a couple of, for about 3 months and uh Mads who is the sommelier of uh of Noma um came through and uh, Yair introduced me to Mads, um, one day when he was eating and was just like, you know, Mads, you really have to work with Nikki. Um, she's the queen of Mezcal. Uh, and, (laughs) and, uh, it was really, uh, Yair who kind of put me in, in the running. And, uh, a few months later, I received a phone call from Santiago Lastra, who was doing all the sourcing for the Noma pop-up, um, and uh he was like, "Well, like everyone says that you're the one, so let's work with you and we know which is knowing uh enough people and kind of that scene and and
0: yeah, yeah." I mean, that's, that's the way that it seems to go, but, but during this time and before they contacted you, 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 I mean, it seems to me that like, you know, you were building on the menu for your pop-up with different mezcals. Were you Mm -hmm. traveling at this time too, or were they kind of coming to you through friends and other people like Max that were kind of like, you know, traveling and, and sourcing these different spirits?
2: So Max, um, was the one sourcing the spirits. I mean, Max, um, uh he first met Hermocanes and Paula, who are uh, two of the mezcaleros that we work with in um, Logoche in 2012, and just started buying most of the mezcal that he was, uh, quote unquote, sourcing was coming from Logoche. Um, and so he would come through Mexico City, drop all his mezcal at my house, and I became, my apartment became this kind of informal mezcal tasting room. So I had like, okay. you know.
0: Uh, just not a not a bad thing to have your apartment turned into. Upwards of like into. 100 liters yeah, <laughs> of
2: Mestal in my apartment at a time. So I became this kind of like informal dealer. Like people would be like, hey, what do you got? And, you know, people would come through and I would like, you know, with my plastic funnel, like fill up bottles for folks. And, um, and you know, uh, it, it was kind of a point of sale. And, a, and um, I was running these little tastings and uh, hangs um, at my apartment. So, you know, um, we were doing that for a long time uh, before anything became
3: like really a business. I'm super curious of one thing. Uh, I was uh, I I came to the States in 2008 and 2009 and and Mexico was starting to turn into what you experienced. But I like my adult life and my like your my formative years have been in the states not in mexico city mm-hmm. so to hear you say all this it makes me extremely jealous and happy <laughs> <Because> <laughs> that's, that's exactly what i wanted it to happen in when i was over there and um but it's it's fascinating to hear this but who who were the people that come to to all these amazing you know projects that you're talking like it's a mix of uh you know it's a mix from people from other countries and Mexicans where you have a, a heavy mexican community what 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 was the mix in the that it was happening
2: Um, it was really a mix of uh some there was a a bit of a like a expat like foreigner community on the one hand um a lot of folks working in the art world um so artists and residents coming through on the one hand, and then um, a really strong, creative local community, um, which was the, the, the kind of the only reason we could do what we were doing. Um, so uh, Pichon as a project really leaned heavily on the fact that um, my very good friend, uh, Billy Gonzales, um, who has this uh, project called Appropriacion del Espacio, and it's a an architecture firm. Um, he had established this space, which was this like totally. It's kind of like an untenable restaurant space. with uh, the communal table, and he created this platform that we could use. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then at that time, there was also, you know, um, all these uh, galleries um, emerging um, in the music space, Nafi, and um, all these just cultural spaces emerging and, and projects emerging, and um, that created this interesting kind of, I would say like creative uh, effervescence and creative class. And um, they were all uh, talking to each other. And I think that like the fact that I worked in the art world before I got involved in food also helped. So I really feel like during this time, um, all these different uh, creative fields were, were speaking to each other. Um, so the folks who were you know, going to parties, uh that my ex-boyfriend was throwing um were also consuming um food at at my pop-up or buying the mezcal and uh yeah
0: you're really speaking our language because gabrielle Uh and i both come from art backgrounds, contemporary uh-huh. art, fine art, and all of that, and and yeah. I think that it's interesting because there's so much overlap between, like, the food culture and community as well as the art community, um, uh-huh. and in a lot of ways, they're, like, one in the same with creativity and experimentation um, for sure, and, and when you're young and, and you're surrounded by that, yeah, it can burn you out absolutely for sure, but it also uh-huh. can propel you forward um in a way that sometimes you just don't expect um
3: and the the community building that goes with just sharing because that at the end of the day that's what the the whole magic happens you're sitting down you're having a mezcal you're sharing a thought you're sitting down you're eating lunch or brunch or dinner or whatever it is that is in front of your plate and you're sharing something so it's it's very it feels very good to hear that there's there's this stories happening, uh, and and that there were like the base for for you guys to to initiate something else.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that definitely kind of like the way that um, Max and I see ourselves as like co founders and friends is that um, a lot of the relationship building that I was doing in in Mexico City and in um, just Mexico in general um was happening in kind of different scenes um than, than the ones that Max uh was um involved in. So so Max was always the guy on the ground in Oaxaca and has uh is like the padrino of like every single fiesta in Logoche and has known a lot of the producers that we are currently working with for um you know in some cases over ten oh almost ten years. Um and uh he carries this really deep sense of um responsibility. Um not in a like oh like I have to go see grandma way, but like he really cares. And because those are really his friends and people who make up his social world, um, as they now do more and more mine. Um, but yeah, I think that um in both of our cases, like The 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 Netta that exists today as a company has grown out of um, a lot of many years of of relationship building in different spaces.
0: I think that that's yeah, yeah, and that's like a real testament to what you guys have created because um, to see the timeline, you know, from from if you guys met around 2011 or 2012 or even Mm -hmm. before that um, to where we find ourselves in 2020 it's a work in progress and it's also a relationship, right? The cultivation of your, your relationship with Max and also the relationships that you guys have established with your producers, which leads me to my next question, Um, which I I'd love to hear more about the Logo Shea community and, and how you guys are partnering with them, because I think that it's a really interesting model, one that we haven't had a chance to talk about before on this podcast.
2: Yeah, sure. I think that um, Logoche is such an interesting community um, because it really uh, is like a textbook kind of capsule of a particular moment in history in Oaxaca and in, in Miahuatlán. So um, Miahuatlán is one of the districts of the Sierra Sur. So we're speaking um, about a uh, an area that is two hours, roughly two hours driving south of Oaxaca city. So towards the coast, towards Puerto Fondido. Um, So uh, Miwatlán lays at the foothills um, uh, of the Sierra Sur, of the mountain range. Um, So we're at about uh, 1,600, average 1,600 meters above sea level um, and at the base of the Central Valley. Um, So, um, Mewatlan was an area um, that was important as a point of um, communication and commerce between the Central Valleys, the Oaxaca, and the the mountains and the coast. Um, So, the market of Mewatlan has existed for uh, hundreds of years. and it's uh, an important kind of site of mestizaje or, or mixing. Um, there was uh, quite a lot of influence um, of the French uh, <laughs> during this very famous battle, which is commemorated every year on October 3rd in in, uh, in uh, which was a battle that was important to the rise of Porfirio Diaz, who was an important uh, political figure and quote unquote dictator in uh, uh, Mexican history. Um, And uh, where we are is a community that was established by three Mezcal producing families um, that uh, lived about two hours walking from the area where they are now settled. So Porfirio Diaz um, was very much against the production of alcohol, and the consumption of alcohol and saw it as a um, barrier to progress um, and as a kind of dirty habit. Uh, and so he made it very difficult for people to access uh, any type of um, permit for, for producing alcohol. So um, a lot of people in this area were producing clandestinely for for um, much of the, the 20th century. Um, so and it's good to
3: mention also that this is this is an area that uh, right now you say is two hours to get there, but yes. when we're talking about these times, is maybe a few days with no roads on mm-hmm. the arid, you know, central valleys towards the coast, like. This this was time that they, like when when there was that prohibition it was kind of like self imposed and not it was like it, it was a very strange time, in, in yes. Mexican history.
2: Absolutely. So this was a time in which um, thing wasn't wasn't really until the the late 1970s that some of the the, the roads actually went in, um, and uh, in some cases not until the 80s that some of these smaller communities um, were connected through. Uh, proper paved roads. Um, where we are is still not paved, uh, um, so it's two hours south of Oaxaca, and then about 30 minutes, 40 minutes on a on a dirt road. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So this was a time in which people were producing clandestinely. Um, their homes were far from where the blankets were. Um, and so, uh, distillation happened, uh, in a lot of cases by moonlight or by torch. Um, and they were, uh, manually extracting with their burros and then walking for God knows how long to, uh, their palenques, um, mm. which were these kind of offsite temporary, uh, d- distillation facilities to avoid the persecution of the fiscales or if the, um, fiscal Agents who would come and literally uh, break your stills um, and mm-hmm. beat you and uh, and fine you. There's a famous Corrido of La Chihuizo, which is the larger community next to uh, Logoche, um, which was written in the 1970s, which is the tale of the murder of, uh, of several um, fiscales who came and broke some of the stills and the and the uh community members were fed up and someone from a neighboring community of santa cruz came and actually murdered um the, the, the they, tax agent
3: are they also so, based in like uh usos y costumbres still
2: yes so, yes
3: so that is that is an important factor too on on the communities mm-hmm.
2: yes so um they uh the, the producers that we work with all own their own land privately but uh the governance is uh, is also so uh, you know i think the translation in, into english is indigenous law so they're uh, part of the municipality of san luis Amatman.
0: how does that look um with your partnership and relationship with them yeah so we get a lot of questions um regarding the
2: cooperative and how does the cooperative work and um i'm getting i think increasingly better at explaining this by giving it a little twist and i think that in order to understand um, the cooperative, you really have to understand techio because um, the cooperative is simply a, uh, a legal fiscal tool or framework for understanding um, the work or the, the, the forms of social organization that already exist in the community. So techio is a form of communal work, um, unpaid communal work. Um, so uh, each member, as a member of the community of Logocha, you have an obligation to uh, participate in in works for the communal good. And so there's this understanding of social service uh, and of, uh, of working for the collective good, which informs the way that uh, the cooperative came together. Um, and currently the cooperative um, functions as, it's like a, um, a a tool for receiving money um, collectively. Uh, so they established a uh, they they basically established the cooperative in order to build a cooperative uh, bottling facility um, and to receive a subsidy from the government to build it. So it was built with 180 days of tequila from each one of the, the 12 members and uh and then uh, kind of completed i think the materials were uh, a part of a government funded program
1: when you say um,
3: 180 days of tech just to translate it a little bit is these are these are days of work like yes. you're gonna be working somewhere doing something it's not just like mm-hmm. oh i'm gonna you know sit down and and let you know watch the the field or something it's actual it's actual work happening
0: mm-hmm. yes exactly so
3: And so, um, this
0: was to build the bottling facility to build a
2: a, a cooperative bottling facility and mm-hmm. so um the cooperative bottling facility that is uh in logoche is enormous it's again one of a, a, a kind of prime example of the ways in which a lot of infrastructure has been built in mexico uh, and in oaxaca uh, through these government programs um where there's really no relation to scale it's it's, a, it's just it's kind of one of the i think the largest balling facility in the district if i'm um, not mistaken and the the productive capacity of the community has absolutely no relation to the size of the facility but and yet, you know, um, these kind of folks come in and they're like promising all these things to, to people and they have this crazy bottling line that doesn't really make any sense either. So um, they had all this infrastructure basically sitting in uh, like disuse for many, many years because there was a lot of confusion about the permits required from the SAT, so the, the kind of... IRS Mexican IRS and then the requirements for uh the certifying body for the the CRM Uh and so um we finally were able to to kind of convince people that we didn't have to certify the bottling facility to actually be able to use it um late last year um and have now now are kind of bottling and labeling everything um in low but um yeah when was that
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. When was that bottling facility built? Like how long?
2: 2009.
0: Ago? Wow. And you're just starting to like use it as of the last couple of years. Yeah. There's... That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> there was
2: a lot of confusion around um um uh what this um facility needed, the permits of the facility needed to have in order to function and a lot of convincing that we had to do um, to get people to understand that we you know we weren't gonna have to um, certify everything in order to to use I mean that they can literally use the facility for whatever they want they could bottle water if they wanted um, yeah soft drinks, anything
0: are they what? using it for other other beverages at the moment? um they are not they are not
3: was was this a problem more of like local government versus community
2: um. No, this wasn't a, a, a necessary local government issue. I think that it's uh, um, how I see it. I think that the the, the funding was um, tied to a CRM or a oh. Comercom initiative, okay. and so uh, at that time, I think that they the, some of the community members were convinced that they had to do things a specific way in order to be able to use the facility. Um, Hmm. But there's a lot of these kind of ghost projects across Oaxaca, if you're, you know, I don't know if you've seen all these um, in the mid 2000s, um, there was a lot of uh, government initiatives for the construction of these um, tomato uh, invernaderos or um, greenhouses that, have also kind of been abandoned because they don't have anything to do with like how actually how people actually
0: cultivate like practical practical application stuff yeah huh
2: but then there's these like intermediaries who take cuts of um recursos or resources or government funding projects so there's a lot of uh, people kind of cutting here and there
0: and, and lining their pockets so not surprising. Um, yeah, we hear about that a lot. But um, so I guess I guess I'm really interested to know because it seems like you guys have been instrumental in helping get the resources that the community already had kind of like functioning well. Is mm-hmm. that is, is that
2: fair to say? Yeah, I think that um, as an in- any small community they're all family members as well so there are three families that are intermarried so when people ask me how many families i work with it's kind of hard for me to parse because yeah. um it depends on how you want to cut it if you want to say nuclear families there's x and then you no know, family families. but anyway okay um uh every, the, everyone the, everyone's family every, <laughs> yeah in every in in every small community there's issues and um, and uh, you know I think that in the, the case of Logoche, there's um, because they're all family. Uh, in some cases, uh, certain issues get stuck for a long time because they respect each other and they don't want to they don't want to create a rift. And mm-hmm. so um, it helped to have a third party push certain issues forward, um, so it didn't become personal between between two brothers or between a, a mm-hmm.
0: father and a son so um, like a new a neutral entity that wanted yeah. like the same had same same goals in mind
2: yeah i mean we were we were yeah. like well this is we 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 need to do this and this is in the benefit of you know this is going to bring x amount of money into the community and uh, we'll support you in x y and z ways and we're there all the time so we're kind of available for all those like in between questions um, so you know i think that uh, having kind of a, a third party involved has helped um, mediate some of the, the internal conflicts that they were having.
0: I mean, I guess that's like any family structure, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Was the intention always to export to the U.S. or did you, do you guys uh, actually sell in, in Mexico? Is NETA available in Mexico? No, or? Um,
2: we've, we've been in this very long uh, process of, getting our uh, maravetes are like tax stickers and so we we are we are soon to be available in Mexico as well but of course the issue with the taxes is insane and so that's just a different business model um, for for Mexico but yes we we will be available um, and uh, we it's hard to say what our intentions were because again this was such a kind of um i when, whenever people ask me about the NETA origin story i have a hard time telling it because there's the, the 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 part that started as an idea and a lifestyle and then the the business really um came together about 2 years ago um mm-hmm. but as as uh people involved in mezcal and especially with these is from logoche it's been since 2012 2013 um, and, uh, you know, as a company that exports two years.
0: Yeah. I mean, Gabrielle often talks about, um, the doing business in Mexico is so much about the relationships that you build. I know that generally you can say that about, you know, any country for sure and business in general, but there's something really specific, I think, to the culture, uh, that, that, that demands kind of like a a close personal relationship of some kind in order to maintain a healthy business relationship Mm -hmm. and trust you you know
3: a little bit also like if you if you think about it like you you don't become part of a family just because you know somebody like there's there has to be history there has to be acknowledgement and and help and sharing and being just you know being present, and it seems like Max has done that uh, to the extent to to become part of part of the community,
0: yeah, absolutely. How would you describe your role um in combination with max? like are you kind of more like the person who's kind of in front um and as far as like you know just getting the message across and I don't know doing these interviews and such yeah yeah
2: i'm I'm definitely kind of like the you know, business development person and, and relationships, um, on, on, uh, in the commercial space, I guess, in the like restaurants, bar, like, I don't know the, the, the client facing. Um, although, I mean, I do live in Oaxaca and I'm also very much in, uh, in Laloche. Um, but my, my role in the company is, is more, um, on the business development side. Um, mm-hmm. So the the front facing and then Max (laughs) is if, you know, you guys will hopefully have a chance to have a mescal and hang out with Max some time, but I'm sure Leo can attest. Like Max is like your most knowledgeable agave nerd friend. who you just want to like sit and listen to for hours. And, you know, he's a slow paced guy and he just kind of wants to like, like, drink his mezcal and, 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 talk about plants and hang out with the mezcaleros. And, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's working at the pace and living the pace of the combo, you know, and, yeah. uh, and his relationships in, um, you in, know, uh, yeah,
0: I want to, I want to speak to that for a second, because, uh-huh. um, it's the first time that we've actually heard of that dynamic and, and I'm saying this because, um, being positioned in two countries and doing business within two different countries poses a really, really difficult task, nearly impossible, for one person. Um, you know, if you have a team, that's that's a little bit better. But there always comes this point where you know the the. The capitalistic side, the side where uh-huh. you have to have, you know, a successful business model and you have to meet your margins um, uh-huh. can get can get in the way of and this is more of an artistic conversation, really, you okay. know, can get in the way of like the purity of, of, of being in a community that is creating these things that are living at a different pace of life than, let's say, you know, the consumers are in the States or, or what have you. Um, and I think that it's always challenging when we talk to people, brand owners that maybe be American brand owners that are partnering with, you know, Mexican producers or even... Um, Mexican producer own brands um, that have to do business here, you know, there's this, there's this dichotomy and this, sometimes it feels like a fissure between either where they really want to be and where they ha- find themselves having to be for logistics or, you know, just the balance of things, I guess is what I'm getting at. And mm-hmm. um, to hear that you guys have created a structure where it seems, it seems at least for from what you've been describing, that there's like a, a real true kind of two people in, in both aspects of the business kind of like staying the course, you know?
2: Yeah. Um, I definitely have to mention though, that Max, Max and I would be lost without our third business partner who isn't really like involved in much of our media um, because he's our like secret silence weapon. Um, oh, so tell. my, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, my yeah. Um, dear friend, Yusuke uh, Murayama he and I have been friends for, uh, I think, 17 years. Um, I was his project supervisor when we were volunteering in Costa Rica. And I was like, we were both like 18 or 19. Um, mm-hmm. And he uh, is a business person. So <laughs> um, one of the reasons why Max and I, you know, really didn't get it together for so long is because we actually like didn't know how to, and so um, uh, didn't have the bis- business acumen. So. Thankfully, um, Yusuke kind of stepped in at one point and was a great friend of mine. He was like, you know, Nikki, um, I think that I can help you guys get this together. <laughs> and um, and he's been running his uh, uh, father's company for over ten years now, um, and is you know much more fluent in uh, in business than uh, either Max or I uh, coming from kind of our backgrounds. So uh, he has really been instrumental and um, he is the one who helps do all the kind of our long-term planning. He almost acts as an outside consultant um, who makes sure that Max and I aren't getting like too in our heads about everything. Um, And he's based in Massachusetts. So uh, he was very instrumental in establishing this relationship that we
0: now have with PM Spirits. So I would like to pivot over to Leo. Hey, you still Get with up. us? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm chilling. Um,
0: and I want to hear about you, how you guys came to know each other and um, how your business relationship developed. But before we do that, Leo, um, you've been working with PM for quite a while, right?
1: Yeah, P- PM, PM as... I guess as as a company is probably about nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've been with Nicholas Pelazi, owner of PM Spirits, um, close to eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, we. I mean, we, or he. I mean, he kind of started. So Nicholas Pelazi is a Frenchman, born born and raised in Bordeaux. Um, inherited a cognac cellar. Has a chemical engineer background, and. Um, I guess got tired of that. Came here, and kind of worked in, in in wine and spirits, and for 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 a short period of time. And, and brandy. I mean, the, the idea was to show off a different side of brandy. Um, mm-hmm. And and I had met him. He was networking and throwing all these little kind of blind tastings and and or just kind of gatherings. And I took a liking to him. I was working retail, wine and spirits. Um, I've been in New York for Mm -hmm. about 10 years around the time I met Nicholas. And I don't know, I was kind of tired of doing that. And he was kind of in a position where he was having his first daughter and was like, you know, I probably could use some help. And I was crazy enough to say, fuck it, I'll help you sell these cognacs that nobody gives a fuck about. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, (laughs) and that was it you know it was kind of like i li- i liked him as a person and and then we did that and um you know it, was, it 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 was about you know showing small farmers and kind of honest booze and things that are you know tr- truly artisan right something that's that's made by someone by hand who has a skill set and trying to have I mean, that, I different think that conversation
0: Yeah and i i think that you guys have some of the most unique special spirits in the market today, um I mean, yeah. even if you go on your website, I mean it says provider of geeky spirits, but really it's like provider of these incredibly handmade, beautiful spirit batches yeah, so it's,
1: it's, so. it's, it starts with, with like cognac and 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 and, and then the thing you network and you meet folks and then over time, um we started working with some agave spirits and started kind of really seeing the relation to that to the same conversations we were having with the farmers that we were working with on the French side yeah, of things.
0: There's so much overlap in those conversations. Yeah. Like it seemed like a natural evolution.
1: Definitely. And I mean, and as far as connecting with, with Nikki, um, a couple of friends in the industry, a retailer and someone on the restaurant side, like we, uh, both around the same time, we're like, yo, I, I, I met this chick, Nikki, and you got to try these mezcals or this destilado. And, um, they were kind of both nudging me and I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not really looking for anything. Like we're trying to like hold together what we're putting, what we have now. And, mm-hmm. um, but whatever, there were people that I trusted and 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 I tasted these and I was like, wow, these are fucking badass. <laughs> and, um, I was like, it doesn't hurt to have a conversation, you know? So, um, if people
3: know I, Leo, you know that, Somebody, somebody that tells you that twice, and and is is insistent enough to to go through the the motions of having the conversation with you about this, knowing that you say no one time. If if somebody did it twice, I will make you. I will think that you thought immediately. This must be good because they know they know that you are like very straight cut and and yeah. And, I mean... and
1: one of them actually gave me like a, a set of minis and like I put them on the table and I looked at them for a few weeks and and, and so, someone else was like you you got to come pick these things up for me and I, I didn't know that it was the same minis that I had on my desk already um <laughs> so I was like all right I'll go meet you for these and and they, and they kind of like forced me to taste with them because they knew I probably was going to take them and put them on my desk
2: <laughs> was that noah and,
1: that was Noah. Yeah, Noah <laughs> Noah, <laughs> Noah was like, You're gonna taste these with me and I was like, all right, and we did it and I was like, Wow, these are really fucking good, you know? And um and whatever, yeah, and and then we got on the phone. I think it was me, you, Nikki, and Max. And and it was mm-hmm. kinda just like, you know, telling you who who I was and PM Spirits was, and then you guys telling me what you guys are doing. And um and the question for me was, you know, um, import a distro, right? Because... So PM Spirits is two companies. We're, we're an importer, first and foremost. And then in New York, we uh we self-distribute, and then we have an extended distribution portfolio. And I think it was when the time it was like, you know, it'd be great to to, to 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 have a mezcal or an agave spirit, but, I mean, we, we don't make those choices lightly, lightly. It's like it has to be up to par with, you know, with what our ethos is and, like, how does we believe in, like, you know, just – honest and transparency and you know giving a fuck and we kind of went from there I mean it's noble we, we had the conversation I had to, I convinced Nicholas to have the conversation and he thought the same about the spirits um that I did that they were that they were just fucking badass and 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 just like caliber juice it was like these are these are better than a lot of the things um that we've you tasted like that. and at this point we've been working with lots of agave spirits and have been through a few um, working with a few different people and, um, yeah, it just stood out and, 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 the story resonated and, um, and you guys were awesome. And, um, and I mean, and, and it's just still the beginning, you know, like we're just yeah. kind of getting it rolling.
0: I mean, you, you just, you just launched in, in yeah. New York at least, right? Yeah, I think we're, super- we're that's really- how I ended up getting stuck here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know you were
0: like doing, you were doing like the launch tour and all of a sudden the pandemic happened. It was happening. It was
1: happening. It was tough because we started getting cancellations and people were nervous and it was like, shit, I'm like, we're supposed to be launching. It was like, we couldn't, we couldn't do a couple of events and things just could were, you know, the walls were coming in on us and I was like, all right, we're going to, we're going to figure it out.
0: So really, I mean, this is the beginning of your relationship working together, but you're you're here right. now right. and, you know, we are going to get through this, obviously, and it's going to be incredible to sit in front of you one day in person and sip these beautiful spirits. But in the meantime, because we've made this really cool social distancing exchange yesterday leo thank you very much for that by the way um gabrielle and i and our copitas have um some netta i believe it's the bequeach is that right uh leo correct. Is that correct cool um so we've been sipping on that um today it's been Salusita. really lovely yeah salute <laughs> um, Hello. And I guess this leads me to ask you, but I think you've, you sort of touched on it earlier, Nikki, why you guys decided to bottle as an agave spirit um, and not a mezcal. So do you want to just, um, I mean, talk about that just briefly and then we can kind of get into the expressions that you guys are offering stateside right now?
2: Yeah, sure. I think that the reasons for not um, certifying have evolved over time as we have learned more um, doing this. I mean again like we um had been consuming and moving uh this mescal kind of like informally for a really long time but we hadn't really interacted with the the structures or like the the um the CRM um or the SAT ever until about two years ago. Um mm-hmm. and so initially uh what felt really daunting was uh, certifying every single producer, um especially in a community that had been um really uh ripped off by one of the the people who continues to be um certified in uh the Sierra, um, um this this uh this guy Roman from uh San Isidro Guiche who has this project called Agape Macho. So um <laughs> anyway
3: <laughs> yeah, he, uh,
2: there was this kind of movement in the early aughts um, to create these like mega cooperatives and these pipas de mezcal. So um, uh, cooperatives of 500 families that would contribute, and the buy in was like, you know, uh, una medida de mezcal. So, like, about, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, a 200 um, liter uh, tambo. And uh, he ended up just ripping all these people off. Um, wow. so, so there's a lot of distrust in the community, um, especially cooperating with these types of, uh, um, um, third party verifiers. And so we saw that as a big issue. And then I, I've gotten more and more involved, um, or learned more about how everything works. Um, and, uh, the development of the, of the DO as such, um, I really think that the way that the denomination functions in Mexico does not serve um, the purpose of protecting the culture of Mezcal. Mm-hmm.
1: um
2: the way that the deal functions today really just defends the name, but it doesn't defend the producers doesn't defend the 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 material it doesn't protect producers against uh In the market, they haven't acted as a powerful lobbying group for changing um, the 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 chemical parameters for mezcal, Um, and I just don't think that um, we need to market as mezcal um, in order for people to understand what we're doing. I think the proof is in the pudding, and I think that um, with uh, social media, with the way that Oaxaca has become such a uh, a destination for Mezcal, um that, you know, people can have transparency into what we're doing very easily. Um, and the scale at which we're working does not need, uh, re- require this kind of external uh, um, uh, certification process.
0: I mean, we, we, we've been having this conversation, um, so often uh, because I, I would say, I, I don't know, Gabs, what do you think about like 50% of our guests are bottling as agave spirits at this point? Um, well,
3: you know, it's, it's more and more than happens that what, what it comes to the States recently has been more and more uh, distillado de agave.
0: So Nikki, what expressions are available um, now? Like what did you guys decide to bottle and bring over here?
2: So um, for our New York lunch uh, with PM, we brought an Espadín Capón from Candido García Cruz. That is a production from 2018. Um, uh, Biquish Capón from, also from Candido from 2018. Uh, an ensemble, which is uh, five agaves, uh, Cuiche Verde, Madre Cuiche, Biquish, Espadín, and Tepesate from Manuela Aquino. And um, a Tepestate from Hermogenes Vazquez.
1: Can, can I jump in? And, uh, I think the Espadin yeah. we have is from 2015.
2: Oh, yes,
1: 2015.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, is
3: so is the was one that, that I try with Leo. That yeah, is That is for 2015. Is we
2: have another, absolute. we have an Espadin also from Candido from 2018 that went to Europe.
1: Yeah, the so, Espadin that is um, here I is guess, absolutely banging. I yeah, got some we have am the fucking espadín right now. That's what's going on. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. I know. That's exa- that's actually what I'm drinking right now, which is the the 2015 um, Is this is
0: this the Capon?
2: Um yes. Um all uh-huh. of the expressions from Candido um, for the most part are Capon, especially the espadín, you know, but you know, um, we haven't included the ter- We haven't included included the term on our labeling yet, um, but I think that the next uh, releases that we do of Capone,
3: uh, it's important. Yeah.
2: Will be, will be on the the label.
0: Yeah, people really do enjoy um, gathering that information um, from the label. Those of us that know what Capone is, um, it's it's nice to see because it's just an indicator, you know, of how of how they went about um, leaving that agave in the ground for however long, right? Sure. Um, and so. What uh, so all of the producers that you just mentioned are they mm-hmm. all from uh Logoche or are they from other regions in Oaxaca?
2: They are all from Logoche. So, okay. um, we do buy some mezcal from producers who are not from Logoche but are from nearby communities. But across the board, everything does come from uh, the district of Miwatlan, um, mm-hmm. and uh, primarily from the community of Logoche because that's where. Our commitment okay. is and um, we are working with um, quite a lot of producers there um, and their bottling facility so it's kind of in our interest as a project in the community to buy whatever they or excess um, product they have um, that's not consumed on the local market
3: Nikki, um, do they, before do they work, we branch out do they work in a communal palenque does does every producer has its own. How how does that work? I know it's, it's, you were saying that it's, it's kind of co-op community run.
2: So um, the first cooperative Palenque was um, Tomás uh, Celso and Candido's father's Palenque. And um, that was established in the 1970s. Um, and nowadays, uh, pretty much every Mezcal producer in the community does have their own palenque, um, with the exception of some of the younger producers um, and some uh, producers who do not live in the community but do come and work to make their own productions um, on some of their relatives' uh, palenques. Um, well, and there's a common, bring... common practice of working on uh, a media, so some people who... Uh, Uh, may have agave but they don't have a palenque and so they provide the agave to make um, the mezcal and then the person the the mezcalero who makes the mezcal keeps half of the the mezcal and the 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 person who provided the maguey keeps half of the the mezcal
3: when you say the term medias that's what you said right
2: yeah Media.
3: Media. media media omichas is half yeah Just to, okay, so. to, you know there, you have been using a lot of the the colloquial language that is pretty is pretty cool to use to hear actually
0: gab's that's a really good point because we we didn't talk about the the name that you guys chose for the brand i don't know if max had chosen that originally or if you guys came to it together okay. but but Netta is is slang essentially
2: Yeah, so neta, for anybody who spent any time in in Mexico, knows that neta is like a very common um, slang word that's thrown around kind of to mean like the truth, for real. Um, It can be used as a verb as well. So to, uh, to like netear is to like heart to heart. And uh the the act of like neteando happens often uh, under the influence of alcohol. <laughs> you,
3: you could also you could you could also use it as questioning, neta.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, as a question. So neta for real. Um, you know, you can talk about a like a a drunken friendly night that you had with somebody where you really got in it into it with somebody, like telling telling truth, uh, you, you know, speaking the, from the heart. Ultimate-
3: the ultimate mm-hmm. yes, that is net that because yeah. if, if you don't add the <laughs> way, it loses punch. It does,
2: it does. You have to use the <laughs> way, that's a, a form of punctuating
0: of um, great <laughs> seaway, mm-hmm, seaway. <laughs> it's one of the first things i learned actually um from, from gabrielle <laughs> so two things one um that i'm really interested in knowing is the agaves that that the community is producing with are they cultivated are they semi-cultivated are they getting agaves from around the region um how are you guys securing uh those plants
2: so, this is a, a really important question um, and a really important point about the way that we're working. So, um, I think that uh, I can't say with a, a exact precision, but um, over 80% of the agave that is used um, in all of the, these productions is homegrown. Um, so, what's really special about this community and the producers that we work with is that they're not just producers of mezcal, they are farmers principally and foremost. Um, so um, also in this area, although it is um, governed by indigenous law or um, they uh, are all um, private owners of their land. So um, in many cases, this ends up looking like uh, four or five um, small parcels um, divided between Logoche, La Chibuizo, Santa Cruz, um, and Lanche, like a few of the neighboring communities, all mostly within uh, the municipality of San Luis Amatlan. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, on those parcels, um, this is an area that is quite arid, um, and, uh, mountainous in some, um, areas. So we're not talking about, like, a type of intensive, um, uh, farming practices where you have all this flat land and everything is farmed with uh, rows of agave. Um, m- some of the flatter parcels um, are co-planted with corn, beans, and squash in the traditional mm-hmm. uh, milpa system. Um, and so those tend to be uh, madre cuish, um espadín, tobasiche, some of the, the larger karwinskis. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, we have semi-cultivated, so biquish, which is often used as a way of delineating property or or along the the sides of roads, um, but then kind of you'll find many feral populations of of biquish uh, across the landscapes of Muadlan. Um uh Havali as well, which was originally cultivated for the production of fiber and, and for making rope, but also you know, it can be found semi cultivated and wild. And then, um, you know, the real wild uh, species that we work with is tepetate and towala. And uh, towala can refer to, you know, many different species, <laughs> um, principally two, so, sinyanana and, and potatorum. Um, mm-hmm. And we still don't really know all the ways in which they, they crossbreed <laughs> and uh, hybridize. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, we are working with about nine species of of plants given. I'm, give I'm very
3: happy that you mentioned the hybrid part of it mm-hmm. because there's, there's a little bit of a confusion of how, you know, this is a non ever evolving situation. Like you, you might find a breed, you might find this very strong genetic plant that is just growing massively around the region. And then it, it crossbred with something else and it just, you have a, you know, stronger, bigger, different plant that you still have to figure out what what are the terms that you're gonna be using for for this. You know, like it's it, we were we were seeing something similar with the with the Leova that it was mm-hmm. recently. Yes. Yeah. 30%. Um,
2: hybridization and understanding the ways that um, that agave reproduces really important to understanding. Um, why it's so important to protect the local nomenclature yeah. um, of, uh, of the, the Magallis, um in their region or in their communities, because we have to really think of like people who are keepers of a phenotype or, or keepers of seed or, or plant stock, and this can be hyper localized. Yeah. So, you know, um, the, the Tahuatiche of, of Miwatlan or the Tobasiche of Logoche is not the same Tobasiche uh, uh as like uh, Central Valleys or or Santa Catarina Mina. We're not we're they they, they share um uh, a species genetic so they similarities species.
1: they have similarities
2: yeah. but they are um they have been cared for um and selected by particular people in a in a uh, in a particular area and uh i think that we see this very strongly with espadín and so i think that people like to dismiss or think of espadín as espadín as espadín but no. um this is really not the case and espadín was uh something that was introduced into Oaxaca at different times in different places so it wasn't all coming from the same genetic stock necessarily and then um over the course of you know, however many years, at least in Loloche, espadín was introduced in the 1970s. Um, this has been adapted over many years, and you can imagine how, you know, the first people who got their espadín uh, plantlets then start to share um, their, their pups, their hijuelos with their neighbors and friends, and then how those are selected and reproduced in, in different lands, and they start adapting to different altitudes, different soil types. And so there's really... So much
3: diversity, and you have and you have the perfect example of refined terroir that happens in front of us. You know, uh-huh. this is a, a fifty-year cycle or plus in different areas with different plants, with different even just taking care as you say. It's like there's there's different farming practices, or even just different weather. Uh, you're talking about Sierra Sur, so you're closer down to you know the mountains, but nonetheless closer to the coastal side of Oaxaca. Uh-huh. And and that is a completely different set of rules that you will hear from, like, we, we have a, a beautiful experience with uh, Elisandro from Tosba and Sierra Norte, that is basically the opposite side yeah. um, of you. And it's, it's just fascinating to hear him talk about, you know, the natural ease that happens with the more tropical side that he is on. And then you hear... Uh, you know the 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 taste flavors that happen in in central valley of Oaxaca, uh, Matatlan, and uh, Tlacolula, and all that area, and then you come down to you in Sierra Sur, and 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 Miguatlan has a very specific uh, taste profile for a lot of people, and I'm I'm you know I'm not an expert in any way or form, and I'm still trying to educate my palate, but. Do, will you think that, that Miwatlán has has a profile in Santa Barbara?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the reasons why we um, feel so comfortable and privileged to be a brand that just represents mezcal is coming from Mihuatlan is because we really love um, the, the, the flavor profile. And I think that when you drink as much mezcal as I think that we all do, you start really identifying um, the different things that you enjoy about um, the the agave spirits coming from different parts of the country. The mezcalers from Wadlan really um, have this. Uh, uh, it just reminds me of like um, something very kind of emotional, like very like uh, visual. Like can I just imagine like um, smelling like a wet stone? Um, there's this minerality and um, something very bright and lifted about the the spirits coming from from this uh, area that I just love. Um And I can just put my nose in pretty much any mescal and know immediately if it's from my
0: you know there there is no generalization that fits when you talk about these plants about agave because every region is specific in the genetic variants, and like you said, how people choose to care for these plants over generations um mm-hmm. can all those decisions can affect how that plant is going to grow, and therefore how it's going to taste in the end with, with a lot of hand of the maker decisions in between. Um, so that, that's one thing. So you guys, when you, when you're at a, a store or you're interested in trying new expressions, like one of my most favorite um, in, investig investigations that you can do with, with mezcal or with agave spirits is with Espadine because Espadine is so incredibly versatile. And depending on the region where it's coming from, the hand of the maker, who's making it, and all of these other factors of towar, where it's being grown, what the you know the the life cycle of that plant looked like over anywhere between you know six to however many thirty years, um, it all affects the flavor profile, and and that's what's so exciting about these spirits. So that that's one thing. And then the other thing is this idea of what you were discussing about, like regionally, um, where you find yourselves located um, at at the elevation, et cetera. But then also what I'd like you to explain to our listeners is the production style Mm -hmm. specific to Locoche. So can we talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah. So um, we are working pretty much exclusively with producers who uh, distill twice in copper pot still. Um, Some of the producers still have the refrescadera like top or montera, but they don't use it. Um, And then one of the producers um, who we work with, who we did a release um, with in California does continue to use the refrescadera. But um, uh, an important point um, about double distillation is that this was really uh, a a fairly recent innovation. Um, People started to uh with double distillation in the nineties when uh some engineers I think this was around the time of the I mean it was around the time of the establishment of the, the denomination of origin um for mezcal and there were uh chemical engineers coming in giving trainings um and uh introducing yeah the, uh, the craft of double distillation into into Certain communities, and so um, tomas Garcia, who's the leader of the cooperative at the moment, um, and his brothers were really uh, important in in teaching everybody in the community uh, about double distillation, and now all prefer this style.
0: So um, before they were doing refrescadera, like a yes. double distillation in one pass. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, do you know? a, a hutla style. Can Can you tell us a little bit also
3: nice about how they they adjust if they do adjustments?
0: Yes.
2: So um, all of the uh, mezcales are composed with punta, so the head and the heart, um, and no colas. So um, they don't like the the flavor um, the flavors that can sometimes be. Uh, Associated with the colas so is kind of vinegar acidity. Um, uh, they, there's only one producer who sometimes adjusts with a little bit of distilled water, but pretty much everybody, what they're doing is they're uh, um, simply mixing uh, puntas and corazon. And um, if they want to bring the ABV down a little bit more, then they'll use uh, a high proof cut from the first distillation. Okay. So a bit of kamon uh, or shisha, which is what they call. It.
3: Beautiful. Do you have a specific rhythm, meaning uh, through the year of production?
2: Yeah. So right now we're in high season for production. Um. So uh, the dry season. So this is uh, like January. People are starting to harvest, um, and then. February to June is um, high season for production. So now everybody's really distilling like crazy. Um, And I think that uh, something that's important to mention, um, and this is something that I think that uh, NETA shares with a lot of these other uncertified brands like Cinco Centils, Respiral, um, uh, Mezcaloteca, et cetera, is that we are not, we don't um, put in orders for Mezcal. So we're not like you know, candy or so. So hey, can you make me a thousand liters of the whatever? Um, the, the the way that we're working is like okay, uh, we're on the ground during the, the production months. Um, we're asking producers to kind of keep journals of what they're making and how they're making it. Um, we pick up samples of everything that's being produced. Um, and we we make selections, and in a lot of cases, uh, we know that. Um, a producer is going to make this like really crazy blend uh, ensemble, like using um, these agaves that you never see. And so we kind of uh, say ahead of time, you know, we want this batch. Can you hold it on, hold on to it for us? But we, we really are trying to meet the producers where they're at with how they work. Um, it's really, really difficult to do the, a planning which would involve like flying drones and counting every single agave, knowing exactly what's going to be ripe and um, and figuring out exactly how much people are going to produce. Like we just don't know. <laughs> and uh, we have to trust that each producer, they're extremely competent, talented uh, farmers and um, who've been managing land their entire lives uh, and have learned land management practices from, their parents and grandparents so uh, we have kind of an average um, uh, an idea of the average amount that's going to be produced each year from each each uh, maker
0: um, and but then you have uh, no idea like the flavor like what we don't going really to be I mean, using or anything like no, that I mean, I mean it's really we left know
2: up what plants people have roughly I mean we, we we know what species people are working with um, mm-hmm. but uh, we're working with like a million SKUs. You know, it's like mm-hmm, every release mm-hmm. is different. Like we're, in some cases, if there's a larger batch, um, we will divide that batch amongst different markets and um, and they'll be released over several, or like a couple of pallets. But our average, the average lot size um, coming out of the is about 200 liters. And then we have these tiny mini batches that are like 40 liters, 60 liters, 80 liters. And so something that we've been working with um, PM with Leo and, and Nicola um has been about uh connecting restaurant groups or bars or retailers with these small batches um and trying to create these uh like more robust relationships and, and get people on the ground to tell the stories of how things are made and, and consume mezcal in the way that it's produced.
3: Early early this year we crossed paths in Oaxaca. Uh when we uh-huh. went to visit and I pass your tasting room headquarters. Yeah, our office. Used to be, it used to be a Piedra Lumbre, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A long time ago. Uh, is there any, knowing your background, hearing your talk, hearing the passion that you have for not just the production, but I think the connection with people and, and mm-hmm. creating these experiences, is there is there any interest in of of keeping some of those uh, smaller batches and and have like an, a a proper tasting room open to the public? Absolutely. Or, I, I know definitely. I know you have it. I know you have it by appointment, but that is more like friends and family and business. Yeah. Uh,
2: no, absolutely. I think that's something that um, Max and I have been really excited about doing, and that's something that we're looking forward
3: to um,
2: making some of these really cool small batches available on the Mexican market. Um, But, you know, we have been trying to tackle one thing at a time. It's been such a steep learning curve, Um, just learning how to run this business and and sell uh, a controlled substance internationally um, that uh, our, our second kind of thing that we were interested in and doing um, was definitely creating a space. Um, and we uh, do end up hosting a lot of people in the office and having these very long tastings um, that we we're always happy to give. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think there there's gonna come a point where we do have to formalize that a little bit more and we'll see what this uh, living with the virus life looks like. And, yeah. and hopefully we'll be able to
0: make that happen. Because we do have listeners internationally, we have listeners in Europe and Asia and South Asia and Australia. Um, can you please give uh, those listeners an idea of what the market looks like internationally for Absolutely. you guys right now?
2: So on our website, um, there is a Stockist page that I tried to keep updated. So you can see a full listing there. But Nessa, we actually launched in, in France. So um, my EU importer, who is a really dear friend, uh, David Migueres of Mezcal Brothers, um, he is my uh, European, uh, our, our European importer, um, and we work with uh, um, a distributor in the UK, uh, Vine Trail, um, also really fantastic folks. Um, uh, we're available in Belgium through uh, another Noma friend. Um, Willem, and then in Denmark with Chopin, uh, in, uh, California with the guys from Albien. Um, so soon available through Winebow, and then uh, the rest of the U.S., uh, that's all imported through PM. Um, and that's. Pretty much where we're at right now, and kind of working on some other markets.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, and in Canada, we're we're available in Montreal as well.
3: Oh,
0: that's great. Well, Nikki, Leo, Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. This has been amazing. Salusita, everybody.
2: Awesome.
1: Um, Salus. Thanks so much.
3: Salusita. Hey, got... side. Hey, thank y'all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabriel Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lussard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salusita.